Have you ever opened up and shared your heart with somebody, you know, like revealing some pain or some sorrow or maybe a hurt or a frustration in your life, only to have them respond with, you just need to trust God. Raise your hands if you've ever experienced that. Somebody just said, you, you just need to trust God. Okay, now don't answer this out loud, but how did that make you feel? I mean, did you feel like punching them in the throat? I mean, I, I, I mean, and maybe, maybe it wasn't that. Did you respond, as I have on occasion, whether you said it out loud or not, maybe you just kind of thought it to yourself. You know, that's probably good advice. And it certainly sounds like religious advice, but what does that mean? Okay, trust God. I get it. You know, that's good. But what does that look like? Like in my particular situation that I'm in right now, what does it look like to trust God in your situation? And, and I know that there, there's a lot of people here who are in some pretty dark situations in life right now. What does it mean in that situation to trust God? Because, I mean, obviously, I don't think anybody here would say, I, I think it's a good idea to not trust God. Right? And we all know it's good advice to trust God. I mean, it's always the right thing to do, trust God. He is, after all, God. But what does it look like? What does it look like? This is Father's Day, and, you know, as fathers, well, we, we tend to be pretty practical, and we kind of like, okay, but I want to know what it looks like. Give me, a, give me a picture of what that is. Give me something practical to hang on to. So today, I, I want to look at what it looks like as a father, and not just as a father. Uh, this message is for everyone, not just dads. What does it look like to trust God when things aren't going well at home or with your kids or at your work or just in your life? And let's take it even a step further than that. What does it look like to trust God when things aren't going well and it feels permanent? You you ever had a problem in your life that didn't just seem like it was going to be here for a little while? Like it was, it felt like a permanent problem. It seemed like it was never going to change and you didn't see the light at the end of the tunnel. What does it mean to trust God then? Because see, it's, I think it's easier to trust God when you know why something is happening and you know how long it's going to be. You can see the light at the end of the tunnel. It's kind of like, you know, it doesn't really take a whole lot of faith for me to walk to the end of these steps. There's just four of them. And I can see the end, right? It doesn't take a whole lot of faith. But what if you're standing on a staircase that seems endless? What does it mean to trust and walk in faith on those situations when it seems permanent, the problem feels irreversible, and you don't get it? You don't understand why. I want to talk to you just for a few minutes minutes this morning about trusting God when you don't understand. I want to look at a father in the Bible who loved his kids. He, he loved his kids. He went through horrific suffering, but he learned to trust God. His name was Job. And if you have your Bibles, I want to turn, turn to the book of Job. The way you get there is just to open your Bible right in the middle. It'll fall to Psalms. Then you make a left-hand turn and you'll be in Job. And, and, and the book of Job just begins by telling us how rich Job was. He was a fat cat. I mean, the guy was loaded. It says in verse three, he was the greatest man among all the people of the East. Okay. So this guy is like the Bill Gates of the ancient Near East and he's righteous. The text says he's a righteous fellow. I mean, it's not like, you, you know, he's not going around saying he, he's a righteous fellow. He's got a lot of money and he's got 10 ki- He needs a lot of money because he's got 10 kids and children are expensive. Can I get an amen from the fathers? Uh, 
And he's got 10 kids, and he loves them so much. And, and, and these kids like to party. He has seven sons, three daughters, and they would take turns hosting parties for each other. One person bring the beer, the other bring the bourbon, the other bring the, you know, the wine. Right? That's how this worked. And they would have these parties, and, and, and Job would get kind of nervous for them. And so what it says in verse 5 is, when a period of feasting had run its course, Job would send and have them purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them. I mean, you talk about expensive. Every time they had a party, he's got to kill, a, 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 you know, a, a, an animal for all ten of them. Thinking, here's why he did that. He was thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. So you're probably thinking, this feels a little enabling, Job. Yeah, I think so too. But which of us as fathers or mothers have never enabled our children? Um. The point is, he loved his kids. And he's a, he's a generally good guy. So the curtain drops on scene one, which is just this kind of background about Job on earth. And when the curtain pulls back up on scene two, the scene has totally changed. Now we're in heaven. And in the second scene, God's there in the throne room of heaven. And, and depending on which translation you have, it's either the sons of God were presenting themselves to the Lord or else angels were presenting themselves to the Lord and the Satan walks, Hasatan, the, the accuser walks in. And God says, where you been? He says, eh, walking around. And God says, have you considered my servant Job? There's nobody like him. He is blameless and upright and he shuns evil. Like, this is like God going, have you seen my trophy? Like, like Job is a trophy for God, and he's putting him out there. Satan, have you considered him? Now, if it's me, I'm going to say, if I was Job, I'm like, Lord, you don't need to bring me up. Leave me out of this story. But God says, what about him? And Satan says, what? Does, does Job work? Does he serve you for nothing? Of course, you bless everything he does. Every time he does something, it prospers. You've got a hedge around him. But I tell you what, you take that away from him and he will curse you to your face, God. And God says, all right, you can. You can touch him. But I want you to notice something in the story right here in this second scene. Satan's goal is to get Job to curse God. His goal is to get Job to not trust God. That's his goal. That is the end game. God, and basically we have a chess game here between God and Satan, and Job's right in the middle. And Satan's goal is to get him not to, listen, when we go through things in life, do you know, we, there, Satan is still around, and Satan wants to get you not to trust God. That's his whole goal. So when something falls apart in your life, one of the first things you can do is say, you know what, I'm going to trust God. And already you've undercut Satan's goal, because that's what he wants. Now, push pause on, on the, the scene here just for a second because, and, and go back to earth, okay? This is all happening up in heaven. We go back to earth now. Job doesn't know any of this. He doesn't know this story of what's happening at this moment in the heavenly realms. It's going to change his life forever. And you don't either. You don't know the whole, you don't know all of your story. So the first thing you have to realize is if you're going to trust God when you don't understand is this. There is always more happening than what you see right now. Always. 
You say, well, I know my story. No, you don't. There is more happening than what you see right now. We often make assessments about our situation. Like we, 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 we judge our problem. We judge God. We judge ourselves. We judge other people based on what we see. But here's the problem. There's always more that we don't see. There's more to the story. Do you, do you remember this story in Second um, Kings 6? Um, there's a, the king uh, of Aram, and, and, and um, uh, he, he wants to set a trap for Israel. He wants to capture Israel and the king of Israel, and he sets a trap. But the prophet tells him, hey, there's a trap coming. And, so they do, and, and this happens multiple times. And finally, the king of Aram calls all his military advisors in, and he goes, I want to know who's the double agent. Who keeps telling the king of Israel what I'm going to do? And they said, king, none of us are double. None of us are spies here. They, they got a prophet down in Israel. And he tells the king of Israel everything you say in your bedroom. Which would make you nervous. And he says, where does this prophet live? And they, and they tell him the town. So he goes and he surrounds the town. Second Kings 6 verse 15. Listen to what it says. When the servant of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh, my Lord. What shall we do? Asked the servant. Now, get the picture. He's surrounded. Have you ever felt this way? Surrounded by your problem? Like everywhere you, to be surrounded by a problem is wherever you look is the problem. So wherever he looked was the problem. And he said, what are we going to do? I mean, this is one of the worst possible scenarios imaginable, friend. They didn't have the Geneva Convention, okay? I mean, like, they, they are going to be tortured. They're going to die. It is over. So this is the worst day of his life. Look at verse 16. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Just trust God. Those who are with us, here's why you shouldn't be afraid. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Now, just stop right there. If you're the, if you're the servant, you're going to go, I, I don't know where you studied math. One, two, whole army. And Elisha prayed, oh, Lord, open his eyes so he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. You see, it wasn't that Elisha's servant didn't believe in God. He did believe in God. It was that he couldn't see the reality that was there, but invisible. There was more happening in his story than he could see. And because he couldn't see it, it affected what he believed and how he acted on what appeared to be the worst day of his life. Now, just compare that to your situation right now. Whatever situation you are in, you will be tempted to assess the situation based solely on what you see. But there, know this, there is more happening than you see right now. God is doing more than what you can see. So what? So be tentative in your assessment. Be slow to judge God. Be slow to judge yourself and especially other people. You know, Oswald Chambers said, he said this, you've heard me quote this before, but I I just love it. I think I want to keep it in front of us. Oswald Chambers says, there is always one fact more in every man's case about which you know nothing. 
I mean, we're tempted to judge people, aren't we, by what we see. But there's always more to their story. That's going on. So Job is about to experience some pretty bad things as a result of this cosmic chess game between God and Satan. But he doesn't know it. He doesn't have the book of Job to read, okay? He can't just flip to chapter 42 and go, I wonder how this is going to turn out. Oh, look at that. I'm going to get off pretty good. Now we have scene three. We're on earth. Job's there one day. He gets a report. A reporter comes in and he says, hey, some terrorists came in and slaughtered your animals. And while he's still saying what happened, he's still giving the report. A second guy comes in and gives a report that this fire came down from heaven, got all the sheep. And then while he's still saying that, I'm the only one that escaped. A third one comes in and says another terrorist group came in and took these other animals. And while he's still speaking, a fourth one came in and said, your kids were partying and a wind came out of the desert and knocked down all four corners of the house and it crushed them and they're all dead. Can you imagine? I have four sons. I can't imagine the heartbreak of that kind of report. So what are you going to do now, Job? Blameless one, righteous, what are you going to do now? I mean, what does trusting God look like when you've lost everything? Well, now what does it look like? Well, let's get real practical here. Um, it, it is Father's Day after all, and I'm going to give you just an acrostic. I, I actually, I, Rick Warren has this acrostic of the word trust, and I just stole it from him. Just the acrostic. Um, and so, but I, I'm quoting him, so that's now research, not theft. Um, um, he, he has an acrostic, and I want to take his acrostic of trust and apply it to the story of Job and see what it means to trust. Let's get real practical, okay? Let's not, because a lot of people can say the religious stuff, but what does it look like? So here it is, trust, T-R-U-S-T. T represents this. Tell God how you feel. If you're going to trust God, that's what it starts with. You tell God how it feels. And this is where Job starts. He's just honest with God. Verse 20 of chapter 1, at this, this is when he gets all four of these reports, Job got up, tore his robe, and shaved his head. Now, that seems weird for us, but in the ancient Near East, that was a way of grieving. That was a way of sorrow. It was a way of repentance. What is he doing? He's telling God how he feels. Chapter 3, verse 25, Job says this, What I feared has come upon me. What I dreaded has happened to me. I, listen to what he says. He, he's telling the truth. I mean, this is raw. I have no peace, no quietness. I have no rest, but only turmoil. You ever felt that way? If you, if you feel that way today, tell God. In chapter 7, Job says this, verse 11. Therefore, I will not keep silent. I will speak out in the anguish of my spirit. He's like, I'm in anguish, and I'm going to tell God that. You know, Lamentations 2.19 says this. I, I love this. Pour out your heart like water in the presence of the Lord. Isn't that a great picture? Just pouring, taking your heart and just pouring it out in the presence of the Lord. The Lord's there, and you're pouring it. And, and here's the deal. When you pour out water, it just goes everywhere, and it can get kind of messy. So it is with telling God how you feel. But here's the deal. God can handle your emotions. You can't, but God can. 
He's very secure in his deity. He's not going to fall off the throne because you said you don't feel good. I mean, I, here, this, this may come as something of a surprise to you, but there are times where my kids question my judgment. I, I know you're shocked. Most of the time it relates to choice of apparel, okay? Um, but there are other times when they question my judgment on something. And, and as a father, do you know, I would rather my sons come to me and talk to me about something and say, Dad, I, I know you decided this or you're doing this, I, I, and, but I think maybe we, we should consider this or like maybe I don't, this is what I'm feeling. This is what I would rather them do that than just stuff it and get bitter over it. And wouldn't the other parents in here want that? You would want your kid to come to you and talk to you. Listen, and God is a way better father than me. And it's not a lack of faith. You know what the psalmist said? Psalm 116, verse 10, he said this. I believed in you, so I prayed, I am deeply troubled, Lord. I love that. He said, because I believed in God, I told him how I felt. But see, telling God how you feel is not a lack of faith. It it, it may actually be a demonstration of faith. Because if there's no God, then who are you mad at? I mean, the fact that you're upset demonstrates that deep down you believe there's a God and there's a right and a wrong. I mean, who does an atheist complain to? The psalmist said, because I have faith, I tell God, I'm troubled. I'm troubled. So the T represents tell. Tell God how you feel, knowing well that how you feel and what is true may not be the same thing. Right? Not every feeling you have, not every thought that pops into your mind is accurate. So it's quite possible that you have a feeling that is not accurate to the situation. But it doesn't, you just go ahead and tell God, God, this is where, that's what Job did. He said, (laughs) I'm pretty upset. T, tell God how you feel. R, refuse bitterness. Refuse bitterness. When you're telling God how you feel, you refuse to become bitter. Do not let your pain or your grief or your frustration or your worry turn into bitterness. If you do, it will poison you. Bitterness is like cancer growing on the inside of you. It doesn't hurt anybody else. (laughs) It hurts you, so refuse it. Well, how do you do that? Well, look, look at the very next verse. Uh, Job 1, verse 20. At this, Job got up, tore his robe, shaved his head. We read that already. Then he fell to the ground in worship. Worship is the antidote to bitterness. Worship is the antidote to worry. You know, it is really hard to worry and to praise God at the same time. So he falls down in worship, and here's what he said, verse 21. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Look at verse 22. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. So he doesn't get bitter. Now, now notice the way that he's refusing bitter here. It's right here in the text. Number one is worship. He he said, I'm going to worship you, God. Here's who you are. And then he reminds himself, and, and I guess anyone else who is listening, of what was true. The way he avoided bitterness was to say, I'm going to worship God, and here is what is true. I came into the world buck naked, and I'm going out. Buck naked. I, I brought nothing in. I'm taking nothing out. 
I said earlier, we have four sons. I was there when all four of them were born. None of them brought anything with them. None of I mean, we joked that Elijah was born with the football, but he wasn't. I was there. I saw it. It's just a joke. We all were born that way. When I do funerals, you know, we don't, we don't have a hearse and then put a U-Haul at the back of the hearse because you can't take it with you. And so he reminds himself of what is true. Job says, look, I'm grieving, I'm in pain, I'm angry, but this is what is true. I came in with nothing, I'm going out with nothing. This is when your faith gets tested. And everyone's faith gets tested. Everyone's. That's how you know it's real faith. Because Peter said that the testing of our faith proves it's genuine. Right? So the question is, are you going to love God no matter what? Are you going to trust God no matter what? This is the test of a mature faith. Don't let yourself get better. It will only hurt you. The writer of Hebrews put it this way, Hebrews 12, verse 15. See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. Look at the connection there between the two things, not missing God's grace and not allowing a bitter root. God's grace is there for you to receive it and and to embrace it, or you can choose bitterness. So tell God how you feel, and then remind yourself of what is true. And here's some things that just in addition to what Job said there, here's some things you can remind yourself of what is true. When, when you see in a tough situation in your life, it feels permanent. You can just say to yourself, here's some things. Number one, God is good. No matter what it looks like right now, you can be assured that this is a true statement. God is good. At the camp, we had the, the kids camp, it was life is wild. God is good. And that's true. Life is wild. And God is good. Another thing you can tell yourself is this. Everything in this world is marred and broken by sin. We live in a fallen world. We live in a screwed up world. What does that mean? That means our life is not going to be perfect until the new heavens and the new earth. Then it'll be perfect. What does that mean? It means you're not alone. You're not the only one who's felt this. Another thing you can tell yourself is God will never stop loving me. Scripture says that nothing, nothing can ever separate us from the love of God. And Jesus proved that by dying on the cross for us, even though we were sinners. He died for us. Jesus said, you're going to have trouble. Here's another thing you can tell yourself. Jesus said, we're going to have, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. The other thing you can tell yourself is, guess what? Jesus got up out of the grave. He conquered death, and that means I will too, which means I win either in this life or in the next, probably both. I win. And you've got to tell yourself that you have to, it's like Martin Luther said, we have to beat uh, the gospel into our heads continually. And when you're in a dark place that you don't understand, you've got, you got to do that with truth. You've got to, here's what's true. So tell God how you feel. Refuse bitterness. You, in the trust, acrostic, is unite with others. Now, as soon as I say that, I need to qualify it. You need to unite with others who will point you to God. Don't just unite with anyone. There's a lot of bad advice in the world. How many of you have ever gotten a piece of bad advice? Raise your hand if you've ever gotten a piece of bad advice. Okay, that's most of you. The other of you are too lazy to raise your hand. 
And listen, some people in the world give you worldly, faithless, God-forsaking, God-ignoring, God-belittling advice, and you don't need that. You want friends who will be with you and hear you, yes, but then they'll point you to God. Because sometimes even family can give you bad advice. I mean, that's what happened in the story of Job. Job's wife walks in chapter 2 and says, are you still hanging on to your integrity? Just curse God and die already. Now, isn't this interesting? She says almost word for word what the Satan said. I find that just fascinating. She sounds just like the accuser. Listen, you want people in your life who will echo God's voice, not the accuser's voice. The accuser is already going to be accusing you. He don't need any help. You, you, you want people who are going to echo God's voice, not the accuser's voice. A, a number of years ago, I was on the phone with somebody out in California. We were, some people were coming in, and we were doing a conference here. And I was talking to somebody out in California, and we, t- we were talking for like five minutes or something. When she said, oh, I'm talking to Tim. And I'm thinking, we've been talking for five minutes. Who'd you think of? She said, I thought this was Paul. You sound just like your brother on the phone. To which I thought, hold up. I'm the older brother. If anything, he sounds like me. But then I thought, man, I missed a good opportunity. I should have said, hey, you know, I learned everything from my handsome, intelligent, big brother, Tim. When she thought it was Paul, that's what I should have said. But here's what occurred to me after the fact. You know, on the phone, I sound like my brother. Okay, and I'm honored. I love my brother. I think very highly of him. That's, That's great. But I wondered, who do I sound like when I talk to other people? Do I sound like God or the accuser? Am I like Job's wife who says what the devil says? Or am I saying what God says? And then the other thought that came to me was, I want people in my life who sound like God. I mean, I don't want people who think they're God, but I want people who will say what God says, not what the accuser says. And that's what you need. You need to unite with other people who are going to point you to God. They're going to let you say how you feel. Yes, they're going to help you refuse bitterness, but they're going to say, listen, you need to talk to Jesus about this. They're going to tell you, they're going to affirm what Jesus says. What's true. Now, Job's friends, you know, Job had some friends and they get a pretty bad rap. And for the most part, they deserve a great deal of it. And I don't have time to unpack all of that. But I want you to notice two things about Job's friends. Number one, when Job's friends show up, They sit there for seven days and don't say a word. So before we, uh, can I just say this? Before we get off on judging them so much, like, look, they they, they weren't good for their friend. I think sometimes we jump to words too quickly sometimes. When our friends just need us to be there. Now, maybe not for seven days. I don't want all y'all showing up at my house for seven days. I ain't got enough food for everybody. <laughs> but they show up and they just sit there with them for seven days and don't open their mouth. They just are present. And we need that. The second thing I want you to see is that even though they're wrong in their assessment of their friend, I mean, they actually had some good theology. They said things like, you know, God doesn't punish the righteous. Actually, that's a true statement. Right? I mean, I mean, like... 
God isn't punishing Job. But that's just the point. They didn't have the rest of the story. So they were wrong, okay? But even though they were wrong in their assessment, they were at least talking about God. Listen, when you got saved, Jesus placed you into the body of Christ, the church. You were never intended to do this life alone. Now, that doesn't mean that you tell everybody everything. Please do not do that. That's dangerous. You don't need to tell everybody everything, but you need someone to walk with you, someone you can talk to that, you, that will listen and they will point you to God because our natural reaction to pain is to withdraw from others. And that's the time you need to withdraw the least. So tell God how you feel. Refuse bitterness. Unite with others who will point you to God. And here's the S. And if you've taken a little mental vacation, I need you to come back. Because you need to hear this. The S is surrender to God. We are called to unqualified submission and surrender to God. Full stop. And there's great freedom in that. When we surrender to God and his will, when we say, God, I'm not going to force my way. I'm not going to force my will. I want your kingdom to come. I want your will to be done in my life as it is in heaven. If you do, there's great freedom. And Job got to the point where he said, I'm going to serve you, God, no matter what. Even if I die, I'm going to die trusting you. If he slay me, yet will I serve him. If I go, I'm going trusting all the way. Right before, I, right before they put me in the ground, I'm going, I still trust him. Unqualified surrender, even when we don't understand. You get to the, the, there's the last five chapters. The last chapter is kind of the denouement. But, but the four chapters before that, uh, everybody's been talking about God. And finally, God talks for four straight chapters. And he says, hey, Job, brace yourself like a man and I'll ask you a question. I mean, if God says, brace yourself like a man, whoo boy. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Where, where were you standing at that moment when I did that? Oh, you weren't, you weren't, you didn't exist. Joe, where were you when I said to the ocean, stop right there? And it obeyed me. And God was God with Job. And he gets to the end and he says, I had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. And I surrender. I surrender. Now, let me be clear. As soon as I say this, I want you to hear me. We don't surrender to the situation. We surrender to God. There is a difference. I think sometimes we confuse surrendering to God with a passive resignation that whatever happens, happens, and that's cool. And, and, uh, surrendering to God is not case or or Whatever will be, will be. That, that, that's, no, no. Surrender. We are called to surrender to God, but we're also called to a holy defiance of the enemy. That's why James 4 says, submit yourselves then to God. In other words, you submit to God. Submission 100%. God, I submit to you. I surrender to you. And then the next sentence, resist the devil. And he will flee from you. Listen, Satan does a lot of things in the story of Job, but the one thing he doesn't do is win in the end. 
I mean, fast forward to the end of the book of Job, chapter 42, verse 10. Listen to this. After Job had prayed for his friends, now, I left out part of the story. We get to the end, and after God has said everything else, he says, Now, to the friends of Job, since y'all didn't speak correctly, you better have Job pray for you, and I'll forgive you. So Job prayed for his friends. The Lord made him prosperous again and gave him twice as much as he had before. Listen, he did not curse God and God blessed him. In your situation, in whatever situation you are in right now, God is calling you this morning. I mean, this sermon is is God saying to you, you need to surrender to me. Surrender to God. Surrender to his will. And don't, Satan's goal is to get you not to trust God. Don't play into his hands. Say, you know what, God, I surrendered, I trust you. And one of the ways you do that is you don't believe that your problem is permanent. This is one of the biggest lies of the enemy. This is one of Satan's biggest lies. It's that nothing can change. When you look in the mirror, this is who I am. This is the way I'm always going to be. This is who my spouse is. This is the way they're always going to be. This is who, whatever. Nothing can change. It's always been this way. It's always going to, no, my goodness. We believe that God is the great redeemer. God is the healer. God is the savior. If anyone in the world has hope that things can change, it's Christians. Because we serve the God who says, behold, I make all things new. And guess what? Even if it's permanent in this life, there is another life. There is life after life. So don't buy the line that Satan wins. The accuser loses. Read the end of the book of Job. Read the end of the Bible. We win. So tell God how you feel. Refuse bitterness. Unite with others. Surrender to God. Not the situation, you surrender to God. And then the final T is this. Trust Jesus for every detail. Trust Jesus for every... Now you may be saying, where did you get Jesus out of the story of Job? Well, Job points forward to one who was greater. In fact, the entire Old Testament points forward to Jesus. The Bible itself is a unified narrative that points us to Jesus. So so Job is there to say Jesus is the one who was greater than Job, who was truly righteous and actually suffered innocently. Job is just a picture to point us forward to Jesus. Jesus suffered for us innocently. He stood in our place. 1 Peter 2.24 says it this way. He himself bore our sins, not his sin. Mine. He bore my sin in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. That is the gospel. That's the good news that Jesus took our place. So no matter what you're going through this morning, you can trust the guy who took your place. You can trust the one who who stood in your place and, and suffered willingly for you. He not only suffered willingly, he went to the cross. He not only went to the cross, he died for you. You can trust him. If you ever had a question, is God up there in heaven just kind of, you know, kind of apathetic bliss, sort of, you know, kind of, oh, look, that really looks like it hurts down there on earth. If you ever had that picture of God, the cross smashes that into smithereens. 
You can never look at the cross and think God is apathetic to our suffering. We don't serve a God who's, who lives in insulation. From, we serve a God who gave up that and came down into our world, took on our pain, our suffering, our sin, and died our death. But praise God, he didn't stay, did He rose again victorious, and he lives, and he reigns today, and you can trust that kind of God. C.S. Lewis said, we trust, not because a God exists, but because this God exists. Let's look at it one more time. Tell God how you feel. If you're in a situation right now that feels permanent, you're like, I don't even know how to trust God in this. Here's what you do. You tell God how you feel. You refuse bitterness. You do not allow yourself. Don't get better. Don't get better. Unite with others who are going to point you to God. They're going to keep pointing you to God. Every time, every time you want to go backward, they're going to say, nope, they're going to point you to God. You want to surrender to God. Say, God, it's your kingdom, your will. That's what I want. I surrender to you and then just trust Jesus. Jesus, I trust you. I trust you because I know you prove that you love me unconditionally by dying on the cross and being raised from the dead. And that is what it means, or part of what it means, to trust God when you don't understand. 